All right. Welcome, one and all, to this eighth episode of The Paleo Conservative. In my last quick dispatch, now like two months ago, I said I'd do my big Pride Month retrospective. So here we are. I put this episode off for apparently multiple months because once I really started researching it, I found this to be just a dreadful subject to think or speak about. But let's go ahead and get this over with. By the way, I'm looking at Wikipedia's article entitled List of LGBT Awareness Periods, and it makes me wonder what's so special about Pride. It looks to me like about two-thirds of the calendar has already been claimed by the topic. Agender Pride Day, a Romantic Spectrum Awareness Week, which seems to have co-opted Valentine's Day, International Asexual Day, Gender Fluid Visibility Week, Pansexual and Panromantic Awareness Day. On the trans front, of course, we have Trans Day of Visibility, Trans Awareness Week, and Trans Awareness Month. California, just this week, declared August to be Transgender History Month. Regardless, I would imagine compared to recent years, Pride was probably a more somber affair. LGBTQIA plus matters have been at the forefront of the news in all sorts of ways lately, and one gets the impression folks are getting a bit tired of it all. I'll start by looking at some recent polling. First on gender identity. In 2021, 59% of Americans said there were only two genders, and in 2023, it's up to 65%. Gen Z, the youngsters, showed the most radical change from 43% to 57%. Millennials were not far behind. This must be bad news for the gender crowd. Public schools, academia, the media, even the federal government have been pushing for years now about the vast and diverse number of gender identities available. Wikipedia lists at least 70. There's a gender wiki, which I grant is a fairly frivolous source, that lists over 2,000 genders. I checked the page a couple months back, and it was closer to 1,750, so clearly they're dreaming up new genders at a frantic pace. It has cake gender, which has at least 11 subtypes, including funfetti cake gender and, of course, regular confetti cake, I guess for those who want to be certain their gender doesn't violate Pillsbury's registered trademark on the term funfetti, rhombus gender, turbo gender, moon and sun genders, tetris gender, and thousands and thousands more. And I think the silliness of the whole thing ultimately was its undoing. Kids can look around and plainly see that they all fall basically into two categories, and the idea of calling someone Z or Zer or Bun or Bun Self is just a bridge too far. Adults will try to push this onto kids because their curriculum says so, and it'll all just seem ridiculous and hokey to the youngsters. So we know the craziness of neo-pronouns and expansive genders was just a flash in the pan, but what about transgenderism? Well, that's having a bad few months as well. In 2021, when Americans were polled by Gallup, 51% said it was immoral to change your gender. This year, 55% say it is. In 2020, 15% said we have gone too far in accepting transgender people. But in 2023, that's up to 43%. And by the way, these numbers almost certainly still paint an incomplete picture. This year, a policy analysis firm in the UK commissioned a poll to see how well people even understand the term. Only 65% of respondents even understood that a so-called transgender woman or trans woman refers to someone who is male. So when we see polling show that even in blue states, a majority of people think that trans people should play on the team that matches their biological sex, we should bear in mind that a lot of the respondents didn't even really understand the question. And the real numbers would almost certainly show even greater support for sports teams divided by biological sex. And since I brought up sports, let's talk sports. This is one area we're putting off the podcast for months was maybe a good thing because there's been some surprising developments on this front in the last few weeks. Last year, the International Rugby League banned transgender males from competing against women. 
They also referenced some fairly extensive research from the UK's Sports Council Equity Group. I'll quote a bit of it. Adult male athletes have, on average, 10 to 12% performance advantage over female competitors in swimming and running events, around 20% advantage in jumping events, and 35% greater performance in strength-based sports, e.g. weightlifting, for similar-sized athletes. When average-sized males are compared with average-sized females, the difference is such that the males are half as strong again as females. And if you're not familiar with the Britishism they use there, that means that men are, on average, at least 50% stronger than women. Continuing the quote now, according to data from the NHS, 50% of males are taller than more than 95% of females with longer, straighter limbs and bigger hands and feet. Males have greater muscle mass, concentrated in the upper body, bigger hearts and lungs, and greater stamina through higher hemoglobin, oxygen-carrying capabilities, than females. And later they say this, The reality that males and females do not often play competitive sports against each other makes it difficult to appreciate the difference in physical capabilities in most cases, particularly in team sports. However, an understanding of the gap between the two sexes can be recognized by results of practice matches between national senior women's football teams against underage boys teams in recent years. The national teams from Australia, USA, and Brazil were beaten comprehensively, 7-0, 5-2, and 6-0, respectively, by club teams of 14- and 15-year-old boys. End of quote, and that all sounds pretty reasonable to me. In March of this year, World Athletics also outright banned males from women's competition. They regulate most of what we call track and field events, sprinting and hurdles, marathons, pole vaulting, and whatnot. FINA, the world's swimming governing organization, banned anyone who experienced male puberty from women's competition in June, maybe finally putting the Leah Thomas fiasco to rest. At the start of the year, the Professional Disc Golf Association enacted a policy that trans males who had gone through male puberty were ineligible for play at the elite or professional level in women's competition. They were unique in that they conducted an anonymous survey of their members and published the results. The results were fairly strongly in favor of keeping males out of play. 55% of all women disagreed with having trans men play. Even after hormone therapy, 63% of pro players and 75% of women on the professional tour. And then in July, the UCI, the Union of Cyclists International, did the same. This one seemed more controversial than the others because there are a ton of men grabbing medals and prize money from women in women's cycling. So this actually affected several people's careers. A Twitter account, iHeartBikes, I'll leave a link in the comments, has cataloged dozens of instances of this. I actually found it depressing scrolling through all the links and photos. In one of her posts, she asks USA Cycling, who as yet have not changed their policies to fall in line with the UCIs, rhetorically but fairly aptly, if they think having young girls being beaten in races by overweight men in their 40s should now be considered some sort of rite of passage for junior cyclists. And then, I admit I was surprised by this one, the International Chess Federation did the same and said anyone who has transitioned from man to woman has no right to participate in women's events. Firstly, this is more noteworthy because while the differences between male and female bodies are pretty obvious, we don't really talk as much about brain differences. Men are better at tracking moving objects, for example. Men are better at visualizing objects rotated in space. Women likely have better verbal abilities, definitely are better at reading facial expressions and social cues. So anyways, male and female brains are different, and it turns out the vast majority of chess grandmasters are men, and there's very likely a biological component to this. But chess is a standout in that women are at least competitive against elite players. There's currently a woman who's ranked 89th in the world. In more athletic events, women have no realistic chance at competing against men at the elite level. A famous example is when the Williams sisters said they could beat a man with a world rating around 200. 
A German man named Karsten Brasch happened to be in Australia, where the Williams sisters were at the time, having just played in the Australian Open, and he decided he'd give it a go. He beat both Venus and Serena in the same afternoon, apparently smoking Marlboros between sets. And this was a friendly match, by the way. I don't bring this up to discredit her or anything. Serena later said on David Letterman that men's tennis and women's is just very different and she doesn't want to play men anymore because she'd lose. There's a website, boysversuswomen.com, that tracks how boys perform against women Olympic athletes. And the takeaway is that if you held an Olympic-style competition with high school boys from the United States versus the most elite women athletes in the world, it would nearly be a shutout with the boys taking 80 medals and the women receiving six. So anyways, chess was unusual because a woman ranked 89th and is unique among nearly all competitive sports, if you want to call chess a sport. There's also a darts player, Fallon Sherrick, who made history by beating top-ranked men at tournaments, though she never won an open tournament. Oh, and a woman won the gold medal in 1992 for skeet shooting, and the IOC responded to this, by the way, by removing the open category altogether and making it sex-segregated, which was interesting. There have been competitive billiard players and so on, so it happens from time to time, but these are outliers, and in virtually every competitive athletic endeavor, men and boys have a clear advantage over their female counterparts. So how, then, do people justify letting males play against women? Well, one way is to just claim that there's no meaningful difference between male and female performance. NPR claimed in March that, quote, there is limited scientific research that males have a physical advantage over women. Though they did subsequently correct this after countless people mocked them for it. The New York Times wrote an article back in 2019 claiming that Castor Semenya's elevated testosterone levels provided no athletic benefit and did not contribute to wins in women's racing. It's worth noting that Semenya's testosterone levels were in line with a male with fully functional testes because he is a male with fully functional testes and was banned from competition for that reason. Writing for The Atlantic, Maggie Mertens tells us that, quote, maintaining this binary in youth sports, and here she's referring to sports segregated by sex, reinforces the idea that boys are inherently bigger, faster, and stronger than girls in a competitive setting, a notion that's been challenged by scientists for years. She later states, and though sex differences in sports show advantages for men, researchers today still don't know how much of this is attributable to biological difference versus the lack of support provided to women athletes to reach their highest potential. Now, I'll pause a moment because I'm honestly confused about how articles like this get written. If you're unsure that boys are bigger and stronger than girls, I have to ask if you've ever been to a track meet or a cycling event or compared boys' basketball games to girls. I read a report yesterday suggesting that training and nutrition may explain the difference. And I wonder if any of these riders have ever gone up to a female athlete and told them that maybe they'd be more competitive if their coaches trained them as well as the boys or if their parents fed them better. And if you're really so confused about testosterone's benefits, you really need only look at Castor Semenya, which is especially surprising since the article I mentioned earlier was literally about Mr. Semenya. World Athletics had been tweaking their various requirements regarding testosterone in supposedly female athletes and Semenya's numbers bounced up and down with a pretty strong correlation to those testosterone numbers. Speaking of, testosterone suppression is another common means by which trans males are allowed to compete with women. On the one hand, yes, clearly this does help a bit to level the playing field. Suppressing testosterone to very low levels does reduce strength and muscle mass a bit. Unfortunately, that doesn't address all the developmental advantages these men had while their bodies were awash in testosterone after puberty. Men's bones are larger and more dense, their hearts and lungs are bigger, and of course they're physically larger and taller. 
I don't think this policy ultimately will last all that long, as it's kind of a dumb stopgap. Men minus testosterone are not the same as women, and it's unlikely we've found this one magic variable that somehow fully equalizes male and female performance. One gets the impression that athletic organizations tend to agree. Look at the example of Emily Bridges, a male trans cyclist. UCI and British Cycling kept extending the testosterone requirements to compete as a woman, first a year, then two years, and then finally banning males altogether. And every time it looked like he might finally get to compete, he was denied again. It would have saved everyone a lot of trouble and annoyance if they just said, sorry boys, you can't compete against the girls right from the start. And I guess that leaves maybe just one last category, and that's the folks who say that trans women are women Full stop. There's no meaningful difference, and this business of measuring testosterone or physical examination is all just dehumanizing. I'll let the fairly notorious Dr. Veronica Ivey do the explanation from his appearance on Trevor Noah's show. There are many who would argue who are not transphobes. There are many who, who born biologically women who will say, but you have an unnatural advantage over me. And that makes the sport unfair. How do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, there's lots of ways you can respond to that. So the first is... The, the very language of you were born and I'm not biological somehow, like I don't think I'm a cyborg. So like this idea that like, oh, you're not a biological woman. Well, I am a woman, that's a fact. I am female, so all my identity records, my racing license, my medical records all say female, mm -hmm. right? And I'm pretty sure I made a biological stuff. So I'm a biological female mm -hmm. as well. So this question of do trans women have an advantage over cis women? We don't know. Um, in fact, there's basically no published research on this question. However, uh, there's good reason to think that there isn't, but I think it's irrelevant because we allow all kinds of competitive advantages within women's sport. So there you have it. He's a biological female. His Canadian driver's license says he's female. And if he has some competitive advantage over other females, no problem. So what? It's irrelevant. And this is maybe the final form of the whole of gender ideology. There should be no meaningful difference between a male woman and a female woman. In fact, the word female itself is misleading because, as the good doctor says, he's female already because he decided he was. Humans seemingly are exempt from the normal rules of biology. Chromosomes and hormones play no part in determining your sex at all. You are what you say you are. We also see this in attempts to pretend that sex is not real. For a while, it became very fashionable to say that sex is not a binary at all, and there's male, female, and a whole spectrum in between. They'll point to the variety of uncommon disorders, commonly chromosomal in origin, that are now generally referred to as disorders of sexual development. It's worth pointing out that each of these conditions still results in people who are considered unambiguously male or female, and in general, the so-called intersex community is unhappy being brought into the trans debate at all. We speak of humans in general terms that describe virtually all of us, two arms, two eyes, generally bilaterally symmetrical, and just because someone, either through developmental issues or misadventure, doesn't match those generalities, we don't redefine humanity or declare that they are no longer human. And once you allow activists to redefine or render meaningless terms we've all known and used since time immemorial, male, female, man, woman, we find that when language collapses, logic often follows. The UK, and Scotland in particular, saw this not too long ago. Nicola Sturgeon, their former first minister, which is the head of the Scottish government, pushed hard to get a gender self-ID bill passed. This allows people to easily change their gender identity, even from the young age of 16, without the involvement of a doctor or anything. 
Well, unfortunately, right around that time, we had the infamous case of Isla Bryson, a male transgender rapist who had been sent to a women's prison. As you can imagine, sending someone to a women's prison who had raped two women, according to court records, quote, with her penis, did not sit well with the public, and Sturgeon intervened to have him moved to a men's prison. Sturgeon even said his changing of gender was almost certainly opportunistic and did not reflect his true inner gender. But still, the Gender Recognition Act makes no real provision for bad faith transition. Members of the press reasonably asked Ms. Sturgeon why she would send someone who was, according to the government, 100% and non-negotiably a woman to a man's prison. Is that fair? The whole thing seems to have broken her brain and she started stammering, barely able to answer questions on the subject anymore, correcting herself whenever she referred to Bryson as a she. And who could blame Sturgeon? When you allow this sort of cognitive dissonance in your brain, it's hard to recover. Ireland had a similar case. Some fool who named himself Barbie Kardashian, who is a truly evil person, was sentenced to prison for threatening to rape and murder his mother. He had a long history stretching back to his childhood of assaulting women. Well, he was also sent to a woman's prison. To his great credit, it seems he was able to go at least 72 hours without threatening to rape or murder any inmates or staff, but in the end, nature got the best of him, and he was deemed, quote, extremely violent towards women and a huge threat, and he was moved back to men's prison two weeks later for his numerous rape threats. And if you think I'm just picking on Commonwealth nations, the United States has had plenty of other cases. A woman is suing New Jersey's prison system, stating that she was raped by a transgender inmate and was ignored by prison officials. A trans male was convicted of raping another prisoner in the women's section of Rikers. New York had another outrageous case. The New York Times wrote a surprisingly lengthy article on the subject that basically defies description. The case of Harvey Marcellin, who in 2019 was paroled, previously having raped multiple women and murdered at least two women, one of whom was also dismembered. He was paroled, and upon his release, he now identified as female and was sent to a woman's homeless shelter in New York City. He also identified now as Marcellin Harvey. I'll quote the New York Times here. A homeless shelter worker and people close to Miss Layden questioned whether, despite her gender identity, Miss Harvey should have been placed in a homeless shelter for women, given her history of attacking and murdering them. Miss Harvey Quote, presented as a mild-spoken, very tall black man, said Anne Brennan, the nurse practitioner who ran the intake. I said, well, why are you in the women's shelter? Miss Brennan said she told Miss Harvey that placing her in a women's shelter seemed like a bad idea given her history of killing women. Despite her objections, Miss Brennan said her supervisors allowed Miss Harvey entry. Apparently, his feelings and identity were far more important than all the other women that were terrified of him, she said. I'm actually surprised they allowed that person to misgender Marcelin in the quotes. Anyways, he did not kill anyone in the homeless shelter, but he did meet a woman there named Susan Layden, who was herself trying to get into a women's shelter. And in short order, he killed and dismembered her. A reasonable person might ask why a person with a history of raping and killing women would be placed in a women's shelter. You might think, given the outcome, the city would pause a moment and reflect on the decision. But no, obviously not. Here's another quote. Julia Savelle, a spokeswoman for the city's Department of Social Services, said rules were followed. Our policy, in accordance with the law, is to place individuals in shelters based on their reported gender identity, she said. Being homeless or transgender does not make you inherently violent and are not connected to the crimes that were committed. And while she might be right that being homeless or transgender is not connected to the crime that was committed, it does seem reasonable that a history of murdering and dismembering women is connected to his recent crime of murdering and dismembering a woman. Also, Wikipedia calls Mr. Marcelin he, even though most news outlets and even the New York police call him a her. Strange world. 
And he is, for the record, back in Rikers in a male prison now. A normal person reading the headlines, hearing that an 83-year-old woman committed such an awful violent crime, would be confused. That would certainly make her a statistical anomaly. I mean, in general, an 83-year-old murder is pretty rare. From what I can tell, people over the age of 70 commit less than 1% of murders. But still, let's look at some numbers. Men commit 99% of forcible rapes, 90% of murders, 88% of robberies, the overwhelming majority of assaults and domestic abuse. In fact, the vast majority of all violent crimes, arson, burglaries, robberies, and so on, you don't even start to approach gender parity until you get to crimes like fraud and embezzlement, though men do still maintain their edge. And suddenly now we're seeing headlines that would seem to defy what we know about men and women. For example, woman 29 convicted of rape, or a woman being arrested for indecent exposure, but of course you read the second paragraph and learn that, quote, she exposed her penis to a child. You can call society patriarchal and sexist all you want, but so many of the rules that society has traditionally enforced around gender exist specifically to protect women from men. Men are bigger and stronger, and they're also more impulsive and violent. That's a nasty combination, and it's shocking to see people work so hard to break down the barriers that kept men out of women's shelters, prisons, rape support groups, locker rooms, and so on. I've actually gone very long today, so I'll try to close soon with something you've probably heard about. The state of Florida executed a violent rapist and murderer named Dwayne Owen. His crimes are pretty horrible, and they were directed at women and girls. And how did the ACLU mark the occasion of execution? Well, here's their tweet. The state of Florida never provided medically necessary gender-affirming care to Dwayne Owen, causing her enormous suffering and violating her right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment for the more than 30 years that she was in state custody. The ACLU are certainly true believers on this front. Aside from the outrageous tweet above, they filed multiple lawsuits to get transgender males moved to women's prisons and have won several. Have they stepped up to defend any of the women prisoners who've been raped by transgender males in prison? No, obviously not. There's a case being funded by a group called the Women's Liberation Front to stop sending trans males to women's prisons. In their words, they're fighting, quote, a 2021 California law that entitles incarcerated men who self-identify as transgender or non-binary to request housing in women's correctional facilities. The state has already transferred dozens of the 300-plus men with penises, one-third of them sex offenders, who are newly eligible for transfer under this bill. And naturally, the ACLU filed a motion to intervene in the case, which was granted, and now they are, again, fighting for the right to move males into women's prisons. One might say the case will be a slam dunk should it make its way to our current Supreme Court, but remember that Justice Roberts, generally considered a conservative justice, voted to add sexual orientation and gender identity to the protections provided by the 1964 Civil Rights Act, so I'm not sure where it might go if it made its way to our current court. Anyways, that's it. I'm done for now. I had more I wanted to say, specifically to talk about how gender ideology is making its way into our public schools and other institutions and what they're trying to do to children, but honestly, I'm tired of this subject, so I don't think this will become a two-parter. I'll probably address a few issues here and there when I have a chance. So, until next time, thanks for listening.